Hello, Parkview, and welcome to the Parkview Groups podcast. This is Thomas Hoke, and I am uh, your host for the day, pastor here at Parkview. Uh, This is the episode for the week of January 30th through February 5th. My goal each week is to inform and guide group members and train group leaders at Parkview to make disciples. I'm sorry this is coming out a couple of days late. I went on a little trip with another pastor to visit a church down in Nashville and learn some things from them. And uh, intended to record this, but forgot the cables. So, sorry about that, Um, but we're here now. So, this week we are learning from Acts 19, 8 through 20. And during the training segment, um, uh, we're going to talk about some of the implications of this passage, especially as it comes to developing vulnerability, um, which is one of those things we we need uh, to grow in Christ. So, uh, here we go. And we know that community groups make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. I've got a couple things I want to update you on going on around Parkview uh, for our whole church. One of them is the Super Bowl food drive that's happening on February 12th. So that is not this coming Sunday, but the Sunday after that. It is the day of the Super Bowl, uh, but the joke of it is there's the soup or bowl. Get it? Okay. <laughs> it's funny. Okay. So the idea here is we want to bless our community uh, by sharing food. We know there are people who are vulnerable to uh, not having enough to eat. And so we would love to have you bring a non-perishable item to church, food item to church, February 12th. And uh, there'll be more information coming out about that, but I just want to make sure you are aware. February 12th, the food drive is happening. Uh, I'm excited for the way, particularly, we want to bless our neighbors. And at East Campus, uh, that means the people who are running the food drive right next door to East Campus. So that'll be a huge blessing, and it's it's good to see, uh, have them see what a blessing it is to have uh, people who love Jesus nearby. So food drive, February 12th. Second, this is not so much an announcement, but a reminder. I know I did this with the, the group leaders a while ago, but I want to put it out there to you group members too. Um, and that is the Benevolence Fund at Parkview. So some of you know about this, but what it is, is a, uh, a fund that exists at Parkview um, that, you know, is, is always well-funded um, that exists so that we can help Parkview members and those around Parkview members when they have trouble with a particularly financial need. Um, so if you, Parkview member, or someone who's in a community group but not a member yet, of course, we'd love for you to become a member of Parkview, but um, you don't have to be a member to, to use these funds. There is a process, of course. We want to be responsible about how those things happen. Um, but if you or those around you, those you're sharing Christ with, whoever it happens to be, is in need, uh, we have funds. That's that's part of your giving uh, at Parkview goes to help uh, other Parkview members, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have so much in the Bible about supporting those who have need, particularly in the body of Christ, but um, spilling over into the community also. Um, and helping them. So if you have need or if you know of those around you who do, um, there is an application process and, and we do our best to help not just by, you know, granting funds, but but by coming alongside and, and helping get sort of financially healthy and that kind of thing. So want to make sure you're aware of that, the Benevolence Fund. So those two things, Super Bowl Food Drive, February 12th, and the Benevolence Fund, want to put those on your radar this week. Now let's move on. All right, this is the guide segment of 
this week's podcast. Uh, in this segment, we want to get big picture of the passage that we'll be hearing preached on Sunday, Sunday, February 5th. Uh, we want to navigate any speed bumps that could disrupt our discussion, learn a little bit deeper, and give you a couple of places to land in application. So as usual, I'll read the passage for you and comment along the way. Is Acts 19, verse 8. Beginning there. And he entered the synagogue, that is Paul, I should say. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, I'll pause there just to remind you, there are two things to remind you. He is Paul and he is in Ephesus, back in Ephesus, having left and come back. So, reasoning, persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. I'll pause there. Uh, so what happens, as we often see in, in Paul's encounters in these cities, he goes, he goes to the synagogue, he does his best to show them that the Christ, that which way they would have been familiar with from the Old Testament, the Messiah, Mashiach, uh, the Greek word being Christ, Christos, uh, they, he says the, the promised coming one, the Savior, that's what Messiah means, um, is Jesus, the blessed one. That's him. Uh, the Jesus from Nazareth. Uh, but some become stubborn and uh, they speak evil of the way um, before the congregation. And there's plenty more to say there, but they end up relocating to the hall of Tyrannus and he takes the disciples with him. And so essentially what we have here is the founding of the church of Ephesus. Uh, Paul, who's essentially the sort of senior planting pastor of the church of Ephesus, takes the disciples that he's made there in Ephesus and goes with them to the hall of Tyrannus. The hall of Tyrannus is probably a, a rented lecture hall uh, this was somewhat common in the ancient world that there would be spaces where where people needed to congregate, meet. Um, it might be for there were these trade guilds that existed at this time, and all of the potters in a city, all of the um, metal workers. We'll see soon um, in the riot that happens in the next uh, part of chapter twenty, I believe. Uh, almost certainly happens because of the guild of the silversmiths, and they would have places where they met. Um, Places like this, the Hall of Tyrannus. And and when they weren't using those, they would often be rented out uh, for use for reasons like this. And so that was what Paul did. He set up his ministry in what essentially became, you know, we might think of today, a, a church plant just getting off the ground might meet in, a, in an elementary school or something like that that's not being used on Sunday. This is the exact same thing that happened. So they meet in the Hall of Tyrannus, and they're doing this good word reason, uh, ministry, and they're reasoning daily. That means they're ongoing. It's not just church people sort of already disciples, but it's more than that. It's, And as we see here in verse 10, I'll move on. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, that's massive. Um, we know Asia, uh, today we think of, wow, that's, that's like half the world. Um, it was massive then too, not as massive, of course, but this is a significant thing to say. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord because of the, the ministry that happened in Ephesus. We know Ephesus was a major city, uh, perhaps the largest city in, in the empire of Rome or right up there in the top five. Um, it was a major trade route. Uh, there were, there's every reason that, F, that this would happen because of the significance of Ephesus. And so this, this sustained ongoing ministry is, is the, and, and its results are the fruit of, of uh, what happened here in Ephesus. Um, and so we might point out, how did this happen? Well, it's because Paul proclaimed Christ patiently. We see he, he points out for two years and prayerfully, these are our core commitments of what it means for a church to grow. How did everyone in Asia hear the word of the Lord? It's really simple. It was a church 
getting together and talking about Jesus. Paul, of course, teaching. We saw in the previous chapter Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos. There were others who were part of it, and they encouraged one another, and they, they reached out to their friends and neighbors to share about Christ, and the word went forth. Now, when we move on in this passage to verse 11, I want to make sure you know that this is not a, it's not chronological. So when we read verse 10, it's not saying sort of at the end of two years, then the things in verse 11 through 20 happen, but rather we see verse 10, this continued for two years. Everyone heard the word of the Lord. And then verses 11 through 20 are basically giving us a snapshot of how that happened or perhaps the most significant events uh, that happened along the way. So uh, keep that in mind as I keep on reading. This is, this is how the whole of Asia heard the word of the Lord was 11 through 20. What happened here? And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Pause there. Wow. That's pretty exciting. It it probably reminds us of some of the things that were happening with Peter, the apostle, earlier in the book of Acts when he was sort of the focus. We saw even his shadow, even his sort of, there was so much power emanating from Paul and those early believers that they're, the kingdom of Christ was sort of breaking out all around. And, and the things that were upside down, illness and evil, and just seemed to be jumping out of the way. That word handkerchiefs or aprons, uh, it, it's a di- difficult one to translate in different versions. It says sort of different things. It, it's probably, we know, Paul was a, a leather worker. Probably a good chance that this is talking about kind of the scraps of what he made when he was making tents and cut things off. People would snatch those, apparently, and... Um, and uh, because of their belief in the power of Christ, um, not because there was some special magic oil on Paul's skin or something, but because of their faith in Christ, just like we saw in Jesus' ministry, um, it was because of their faith in Christ, not because of the, how he touched them or whatever. Um, people were made well, and we see evil spirits were coming out of them. Now, some of you, many of you maybe, would say, that's strange. Does that still happen? Or you definitely have friends and neighbors who would say, What? Evil spirits, um, we're rational people, right? Uh, you certainly have some friends, coworkers, neighbors, family members who would, who would say, this, this makes this pass- whole passage hard for me to believe. Um, now, d- does this still happen today? Do people still get demon-possessed? Um, I have a really helpful article I read about this. It's called, Does Demon Possession Happen in the West? Um, and I'll, I'll post a link to that with this, with this uh, podcast in the little episode notes below. Um, but the author, Chuck Lawless, points out a few things. He says, first, we must stand on the truth that the human heart is the biggest problem we face. Thus, proclaiming the word takes priority over casting out demons. I, I would add there, too, maybe a, a precursor to that would be when we read truth claims in the Bible about what happened and, and what reality was happening beneath them, um, we, we should take them at face value. So we should believe as Christians that people were demon-possessed, that this wasn't sort of their misunderstanding or that they didn't, they didn't really know what was happening and because they weren't scientific that we can't really believe it. No, I think we can say with confidence this was, this was described accurately here. So um, secondly, he says demons cannot possess believers, although this oppression can be so severe it may feel controlling. And he says third, our enemy is a schemer. And this is maybe the most important point. Our enemy is a schemer, a cunning strategist who chooses whatever wiles he determines most effective in a given culture or situation. Possession is only one of his strategies and not often the primary one. And so his, he goes on to explain that he believes that in the West, uh, this, this type of intervention is not helpful for Satan's strategy. 
he's much more effective right now in, in our particular culture and time and place in influencing people by convincing them that he doesn't exist. And so his, his way of working and operating to, to bring about his wicked conclusions and his wicked plans is, is not by directly invading people's personality and taking over them in the way that we see often described in the ancient world and today in other parts of the world, we do see it. Um, rather, what, what we typically see is something different. It's, it's the behind-the-scenes influence um, that, that we often see we would label as evil, and uh, it's a result of demonic influence, but it's not such a direct way. Um, so if I were talking with someone who's not a believer and it feels confused about this, I think we'd have to say, well, yeah, I, I do think it's possible. I mean, I, I don't know why not. Um, what we believe is that this is probably, you know, if, you know, how would you respond if you saw someone um, who was doing crazy acts that could only be explained by spiritual power? You'd probably have to say, wow, I really need to rethink the world, right? And so, you know, we think that Satan wants to do everything he can to keep people from not believing in him because it would probably make them think, wow, the way I'm living needs to be changed. Now, I don't think Satan wants to do that. That's how I might explain it to someone. But anyway, I'll, I'll link to that article. I hope that's helpful as you guys discuss this because I know it's a bit strange. Okay, picking up in verse 13. Remember, okay, we've had these, yes, extraordinary miracles happening, even handkerchiefs and aprons, whatever, you know, are so evil spirits are leaving them. And then we get this example. One of the most bizarre things to happen in the New Testament and pretty funny in a way. Okay, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. By the way, that's a pretty bold thing to do. Apparently, the name of Jesus was becoming so famous for its power, especially through Paul, uh, that these Jewish, it says itinerant Jewish exorcists, so these are Jewish men who uh, whose job it is, um, this was a job, their job was to go around and help people who had been, you know, possessed by demon, demonic spirits to cast them out. That was their job. Uh, and they had found a, something they thought would work really well because they saw the power of Jesus and they said, I think we, we should probably see if we can do that too. And so they, they said to this evil spirit, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Okay, uh, verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Now, (laughs) I just got to finish the story. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Okay, Um, that's crazy. So seven guys go in. To face this one demon-possessed man, they decide to invoke the power of Jesus' name with clearly without any authority to do so. They they recognize that the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, not who they proclaim. And what happens? The, the the demon responds, "Jesus, I know Paul, I recognize, but who are you?" And then the demon-possessed man beats them mercilessly so that they flee the house naked and wounded. Okay. I don't know if any of you out there have ever been in a fight. I hope not. You know, that's bad. If you ever leave a fight naked and wounded, bleeding, you lost. Okay, you lost. These guys lost, and they were whooped. And this became, here it says, verse 18, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. This is a power encounter. This was some people testing and seeing whether the, 
Because the question maybe is hanging in the air. How is the name of Jesus powerful? Is it like a magic spell? Is it operative, you know, no matter what the attitude of the user, so to speak, is? Can you go to an evil spirit and say, hey, we in the name of Jesus, come out. We don't believe in him, but Paul does. And the answer is a hearty no. Jesus is powerful, and yet these, these jokers are exposed. Okay, and, and verse 17, this becomes known to everyone. And, and what happens? Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So there's this power encounter between the fakers and the real deal. And what happens is the name of Jesus is extolled. And what happens as a result of this incredible and apparently very public act, verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So what happens God's power is made manifest. The powers that previously existed are exposed as being completely impotent and useless. And as a result, we see, so this is, there's sort of two things happening. Those who were now believers, they came. And what did they do? They had a public confession, it seems. Is it public? It may be private. We're not exactly sure. But basically, they come and say, we, we have had such a, encounter with the reality of God and his power, we cannot live the same way. We must come into the light. All of the things that we used to do, we now fully turn our backs on them. They confessed and divulged their practices. Are we doing this? One of the great evidences that we have had an encounter with the reality of God is that the things that we used to do in the dark, we bring them to him in the light because we're convinced that they're weak and silly, and we hate them now, even if our part of our hearts still do love them. But it says, a number of those who would practice magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. The question maybe lingers, why hadn't they brought their books earlier? Were they holding back? Were they saying, we're, we're halfway committed to Christ, but we're going to keep those books because, not I mean, they're really valuable. Have you ever had this in your Christian life? There's something you, you sort of know you need to cut off, but you're, not, you're sort of holding on to it. You're, because you're you're hedging your bets, okay? Let's be honest with ourselves. This passage should convince us. Sell what you must sell. Divulge what must be divulged because Christ is powerful over all. That's when we get to our discussion in our in community group this week. I hope that is where we, we begin to land the plane. And, and verse 50 or verse 20 really brings this whole thing to a, a happy conclusion that we must celebrate and long for, it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. If we were to give one sort of big idea, and this is, uh, you know, I haven't talked with Doug and Mark who are going to be preaching this, but I know they're headed in this direction. It's that uh, one big idea might be that the gospel progress produces repentance and belief through Christ's power. We saw this incredible dynamic happen where the gospel was being proclaimed and the old powers, whether that's whatever, were exposed. The foundations were exposed. They were not able to do what they had promised. Um, and the name of Jesus was was made great. Um, and people saw that Christ's power was authentic, genuine, could actually help them. Um, 
and it says fear came upon them all and they died. So I, this is what I want to ask and what I, I think we long for in our community groups is that kind of dynamic that each week we're not just sort of getting together to learn three fun facts about the Bible. We're having an encounter with the reality of God. And then thinking together through the implications of those facts. Group member, you get to be part of that. You get to be part of that. Group leader, you get to facilitate that. You get to lead us toward that. Here are some points of application I want you to think about uh, this week. First, are you living a life that is impossible or would be impossible unless you were tapping into God's power on a daily basis? I, I, I talked to this week, like I said, we went on a little trip and we met with the pastor. And one of the things I've learned from this guy, Ray Ortland, by the way, just love him, would recommend just but just about everything he does. Um he talks about, and he doesn't put it this way, but the role of desperation in our discipleship. Do we reach a point on a daily basis, on a weekly, on a even moment-by-moment basis, where we come to the end of our own fleshly power, our own human cleverness, to bring about the good life in ourselves, that we actually have to come and bring our souls to the Lord in desperation and say, I know what faithfulness looks like. I need you. I need you to come through, Lord. Is it possible that all of our prayerlessness and our sort of ho-hum version of the Christian life is because we we haven't seen the radical beauty and power of Jesus and come to him ready for him to just teach us? Are we desperate for him? This passage has to ask us that question. Are we like those Ephesian disciples who had who saw and heard that encounter? where the powers that they had looked to before were unmasked and they realized they needed Christ and Christ became beautiful to them in a new way so that their lives had to change. They had to come to him desperate for him. Are we desperate for him and his power? Second, have you had an encounter with God recently that shook shook your world the way it shook Ephesus? And I think about those, those sort of categories. We saw how it shook the world socially and spiritually. They were, they were coming forward and, and being radically vulnerable, radically honest, uh, radically willing to share, to confess, their, it said their practices, right? Are we, are we ready to do that? Leaders, we're, we're going to talk in a minute about, are we creating a place where people feel safe doing that? Are we, and, and then economically, we saw how they counted up the value of those books. Are we holding nothing back, right? Do we see Christ as so lovely that all the other things around us are basically in black and white com- in comparison? Um. Remember that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And my favorite line is, And the things of earth become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Here's how you get there. You have to first say, No, I don't think that's where I'm at, and bring that to the Lord. So let's do that, and let's do it together. Lastly, we start confession. Confession is a fruit of an encounter with Christ's power. And, and if we really are committed to growing in our community groups, we've got to have that. We've got to have that. It can't be, like I said, sort of let's learn three nice facts about Acts 19 this week. Wow, this was nice. I learned this. But have we come into an encounter with Jesus uh, that requires something of us and that our souls would be transformed in conversation with one another uh, as we as we share those things? So that's where I want to leave us with that passage. Uh, thank you for, for listening. I hope it's been helpful. I hope it's been building you up. I hope that you come to group this week ready ready to share, ready to learn, ready to grow, 
um, ready to encourage one another in Christ. Remember Priscilla and Aquila? I want to keep coming back to them and just uh, point out their sort of word ministry. They didn't have a special office. They didn't have any formal authority to encourage and change Apollos and, and encourage him and disciple him. That's, that's you, many of you. Um, do it this week. You can help others learn Christ in your group. Let's do it. So thanks for listening. And now uh, I'm going to move on to the training segment. This is for group leaders. And uh, if you want to tag along and listen and, and uh, hear what, what we're talking about and uh, probably be helpful for you, you don't need to, um, but let's move on. All right, here we are, training segment. So, leaders, so good to be with you and speak to you. Um, one quick thing I wanted to just mention, you know, I, I shared the leader guide with you uh, last Saturday. Uh, was it last Saturday? Anyway, just wanted to check in, remind you that that's available. Would definitely encourage you to use that. And uh, when I talk with you, um, I'll ask you, how that's going or if it's been useful for you, but um, just a great tool for you to uh, continue just being consistent and praying for and encouraging people in your group as they grow. Uh, also, if you haven't set up time to meet with me, the openings are kind of dwindling. So um, especially if you have limited availability, you should go in there and sign up uh, for our one-on-one -on -one time. So make sure you get those two little things. Just want to mention those first. But what I want to talk to you about is... One thing we see that comes out in that passage we just read through, and that'll certainly be a future point of discussion, and that is how to foster a habit of confession. <clears throat> and this, I, I think this is, it's sort of right in there in the sweet spot where relational safety and spiritual initiative meet in your group. <clears throat> so that's that's the question. How do, how do I foster a habit of confession or an atmosphere of vulnerability it's, it's probably important to say, you know, I think especially as I talk with younger people and probably it'd be my age and maybe a little younger on the way down, that there, it, it's important to point out a difference between vulnerability and honesty. Um, I think for young younger people, um, authenticity is sort of a virtue in itself. And so saying, just saying the truth about what you're doing and how it's going I think can come easier, but sometimes it can come at the expense of vulnerability. And the difference there is that honesty is saying, I, I haven't read my Bible in three months, or I viewed pornography yesterday, or whatever it happens to be. Someone, don't, don't clip that out, by the way, and publish that, but something like that, confession, but uh, without the sort of recognition that that's actually, that's an issue, that's a problem. And so vulnerability is, is where you're sharing with the sense that this is this is probably this is not how it should be, and you're making yourself vulnerable. You're saying this. You're sharing something that you actually know um, is a deficiency. So there's a bit of a difference there. Vulnerability, honesty, disclosure, confession. So here, here are maybe a few questions I want you to think through as we think about how how to do that. Now, of course, one question has to be: Is there a space? I mean, a format? I mean, a time in your group meeting? or outside of your group meeting, could be, I don't know, where there is where there's a, a place where that can happen. Generally, um, I think this probably often happens best in single gender settings. So if there's nothing like that in your group, it may be hard to foster this. It's not impossible. And I think there can be some, some really wonderful things that come when this happens in a mixed gender setting. But 
Uh, is there a space where that can happen? Apart from the, you know, we're eating dinner, it would be weird for me to just suddenly say, let's all share how we're doing with this. Um, could be during the Bible discussion time, you know, sermon discussion time. For our group, and I think for many, I would dare say most groups, it's been very helpful to have a separate time where you're dedicated to sharing and praying for one another in the particular ways that, uh, you know, we would get to a certain point in our group discussion, and I'll talk about this in a second, where we're ready to sort of drill down deep into the, and I, I think I've been putting this as the final question of group discussion lately, which is, what do I sense the Lord wants me to do to respond faithfully to this? Uh, sort of what's my next step with this passage in particular? Um and that would be sort of our point to transition to either men's time together, women's time together, both, whatever, however that works. For us with with our kids situation, we we sort of trade off. Women get some time uninterrupted time one week and then we then we trade in the next week. It's the men. Um, but there is there a spot for that? I think that's gotta be a good question to ask. Um, but then at the level of sort of the relational dynamics of your group, here's here's some things you might think about. One thing would be how do you respond to confessions that do happen now, even little tiny ones. Um, people often will sort of test the water in, in, and this is not just in Christian settings, but in other settings, even in just sort of personal one-on-one -on -one settings to see, you know, if I, if I'm a little bit vulnerable here, what's going to happen? If I say, you know, I, I didn't do that, or I, I, I kind of struggle with that. That's often people's way of kind of putting it out there consciously or not. And, and seeing, am I going to get my head bitten off <laughs> or will I be received with mercy and encouragement and confirmation? Um, even if it's not a, not a permissiveness, but a, we're with you in that. One thing you can do to develop a foster and foster a habit of confession, uh, an environment of vulnerability is that when people do that, even, even the smallest things, do you make it clear that you treasure that as a group leader? That you say, you know, Laura, thank you. I'm so glad you shared that. You are. There's no way you're the only one who's feeling that way. Um, and just affirm them to the heavens. Just say, thank you so much. You've blessed us by sharing that. In, in whatever way would be appropriate to really affirm them. And make it clear to them, um, even in the smallest things. Even maybe so small that it's like, <laughs> that, that people are like, that you really overdid it, Thomas. <laughs> And I think that's okay because the, the point, I think, comes through just the same, to really affirm people when they do share even the smallest thing. Um, secondly, you've got to make peop sure people know that weakness in the Christian life, failing, is not a roadblock, not a deficiency necessarily in the Christian life. We know that on this side of glory and eternity with Christ in heaven, we will always have present indwelling sin, what theologians call indwelling sin, things that still reside in us, still are messing with us. Um, and so it's not, we shouldn't be surprised. And, and, and that's another thing. Do people sense that you're not surprised when they're weak? If you, if your eyes get wide, <laughs> if you, if you gasp, you, you know, and obviously those are, that's kind of a silly over over exaggerated kind of picture of that, but there's lots of ways that we, sh we show that we're surprised that someone's a sinner without even saying anything in the way that we respond. So there are many ways that you can demonstrate to people. And often this can come in little sound bites that you sprinkle into the conversation of your group or into the conversation of, you know, your Bible discussion time. Um, where instead of saying, you know, how are you struggling with this? You begin by saying, now this, this passage is so lofty and what it calls us to is so hard it'd be no wonder that each of us would find at least one place 
where we where we're not measuring up and where we need to grow. And and you start it that way by assuming that each of us around the room needs to grow in this area rather than saying, now, does anyone want to out themselves as the only one in the, in the room who's dealing with this? Um, and in that way, you communicate to them that weakness is not a deficiency, but actually an opportunity to grow. Um, and it's only, just like I mentioned in the, in the guide segment today, um, that it's actually uh, desperation for Christ and his power is a marker and a, and a significant symptom of growth. Um, so it's nothing to be afraid of. In fact, it's something to be embraced. And when it, when responded to appropriately, it's exactly how, how God works in our lives. Um, so do people know that weakness is not a deficiency, but an avenue for growth? And um, how do you respond to uh, even small confessions? That's two ways that we can make people feel safe to confess. Now, secondly, do people know that, that confession is healthy and expected? Okay, th- I know this sounds very similar. But here's one thing. Um, do you lead discussion in a way that leads to confession and next steps? Uh, it's one thing for people to be vulnerable, but they need to know what they're supposed to be vulnerable about. And there's a way that we can lead Bible discussion that basically keeps it at the level of um, sanitized facts and interesting observations and historical data and yada, 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 without actually immersing each of our souls into the expectations that are drawn out, the glories of Christ, why we should long to obey this passage, and so forth, and eventually landing on application to to the heart of the believer. Um, and we can lead discussion. I mentioned this before, but that's that's one of the reasons I've been you know kind of leaving that last discussion question as a what what's our next step here, and that's where I always hope to get in discussion is that sweet spot of. We're all gazing at the passage. We've all realized now, and hopefully here, if you're listening to this group member, <laughs> you know, our hope is that this that community group discussion is the final course of the three-course meal. You're listening to this podcast, getting into it, um, growing from it, getting it's getting into your mind, getting into your soul, and it's starting to mess with you. Then by the time Sunday morning comes, you're getting the full entree. The, the preacher is getting up there and really applying this word at a broad level in ways you can understand. You're really seeing the heart of the passage. And and because the Spirit's already working, um, by the time you then get to community group, um, you've thought about this passage for multiple days. You've been exposed to it now probably three times. And we're on to dessert, okay, in the three-course meal. It's not just the appetizer, which is this podcast. It's not just the main course, which is the ser- sermon. It's we're on to dessert. And it's time for that sweet time of us, we're all gazing at the passage going, wow, and if this is true, and it is, what then must we do? You as a leader can help people get there. Um, you you can do that by asking questions that go beyond just, and, and this, is really, this is where you apply spiritual initiative in the context of leading a Bible study, which sounds insane because isn't the whole thing that? But it doesn't have to be, and it can be led in a way that's not ultimately by keeping it at the level of just facts and information and 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 sanitized data, um, but when we say now, what would what would we need from the Lord in order to actually do what this passage is calling us to? Now, sometimes that happens in sort of just the in the mixed gender Bible discussion I mentioned before. Maybe it happened in a single gender time. If you don't have that, might be something to add with your group. But the last thing, and this is probably this is probably the first thing that most people would recommend here. Uh, for people to know that confession is healthy and expected, you know how to do it. Say it with me. Do they see you doing it? And particularly with the way that we've, I've kind of asked you and set you up to, to keep 
you know, leading your group toward, toward growth in Christ, do they know what your next step with Christ is? Do, do they sense that you are a work in progress and, and that you're there in need of their prayer and encouragement and their spiritual initiative? Are, if we never make ourselves vulnerable, rarely will people out-confess their leader. Maybe never. It's just too risky. Um, many, maybe all of you have been in that spot where you share something that went beyond what the group was comfortable with before and you find out immediately that that was a mistake. Um, I've done it. <laughs> I'm sure you've done it. Uh, if you haven't, I almost wish you had so that you can find out how, how painful that can be. Um, you just want to disappear into the carpet. But if my leader has gone before me and has done the painful, risky move of actually sharing something that's difficult and that's not just sort of a safe sin, um, they will feel the stakes have just been lowered immeasurably. And that is what Christ has done, isn't it? He's gone first. He went into death first and came through the other side uh, where no one else dared to go. We have to do that for our people. That's, how, that's one way we suffer with Christ for our people to draw them deeper toward him is by going first. And we might, be honest with you, it might go terribly. <laughs> it might go badly the first time. But I don't want anyone to think that people are going to turn around and say, so why are you a leader? That's not going to happen. I don't think. Uh, but take a risk. You got to take. We have to take risks to help our people grow in Christ. It will. It will cost something, and it'll be worth it. So let's foster a habit of confession in our group. Let's use this passage this week as a as a springboard into that kind of vulnerability and honesty. I hope you're seeing the glories of this passage. I hope you're excited to share about it and ask these questions with your group. And uh, let's pray together as we go out that uh, that those things would happen. Heavenly Father, please bless our groups by showing us the glory of Christ in this passage. Show it to us first. Help us to go first. Help us to be vulnerable, to confess. Um, and teach our people, Lord, we pray, you would help us lead them before you, along with ourselves, ourselves first, taking ourselves before you first. Help them, we pray, grow in a sense of reality of who you are. Help the idols, the false, Jew, whoever the Jewish uh, exorcists are in, in the lives of our people, help them to be unmasked in light of the glorious power of Christ so that we can see deep repentance and true practical change happen in ourselves, in our people, in our church, in our city, in our world, we pray. Please, Lord, we're dependent on your power. Help us to lead in a, in a way that demands your power. This week we pray. Amen. All right, guys. It's been great to talk with you, and I look forward to doing it again next week, where I, hopefully we'll have this out a little earlier in the week. So appreciate your patience, and um, looking forward to making disciples with you this week.